This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Now I'm back, and, and it's not ringing in my ears, so that's nice. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing well. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm your host, Jonathan Master, and today we have the privilege of bringing someone onto the show who is a repeat customer, so to speak, someone whom I've spoken with before and who has, in fact, interviewed me on this show in the past. He's my good friend, uh, Jeff Stuyvesant. He is the pastor of Grace Reformed Presbyterian Church in Gibsonia, Pennsylvania. He's done a, a fair bit of church planting throughout his ministry, and he's also uh, written a book. It's actually a kind of modification of his Ph.D. Dis- dissertation about Benjamin Warfield's uh, work on the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of inspiration. It's published by PNR. It's part of their their uh, dissertation series called From Inscrutability to Concursus, Benjamin B. Warfield's Theological Construction of Revelation's Mode from 1880 to 1915. Don't let the title get in the way, though, because as we will see, this has importance and relevance for the church today. Jeff Stuyvesant, thanks for joining me. Jonathan, it's always really good to be with you. And if I can, I'd like to share just an anecdote for a minute. Uh, I was, uh, I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson when he was in Beaver Falls speaking to, uh, Speaking actually at a, had sort of a pre-talk before the graduation service that he, he did there. I was in the audience and he knew it. And so he, he lifted up my book and he said, you know, I just want to commend to you, uh, this book from Concursus to Inscrutability. And he, <laughs> and he said, uh, don't let the title scare you off. He said, the book is better than the title. So I, I think that's <laughs> becoming a distinctive way in which it's, it's being known or introduced. So. It's it's a mouthful. It, it really is the case that these are important things. We're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, and so that is perennially an issue in the Christian church and perennially something that we need to reconsider and sort of double down in our understanding of. So I want to actually start there, Jeff, and just have you give us a, a little overview. Warfield is very well known for his writings on inspiration and for the implications of that to inerrancy. Um, So if you could sort of summarize, what are Warfield's main points or main contributions with respect to the inspiration of Scripture, the fact that Scripture is breathed out by God? Yeah, I think right from the very beginning, you have to understand that Warfield wanted to define what he was doing because he was living in a in a day and in a time when language was being used rather loosely. In fact, in an 1881 article that he writes with Archibald Alexander Hodge, he says as much. He says that there's an embarrassing way in which inspiration is used, and he and Hodge are trying to to tighten that up a little bit and bring some consensus to the term. So one of the things that he does is he and Hodge differentiate anything having to do with inspiration from a providential superintendence. Now, when he talks about a providential superintendence, what he's saying is he's saying that that's God preparing the people to write the scriptures. 
So there is a providential superintendence that God exercises over all things, including those who are about to write scripture and those who do write scripture. But when he talks about inspiration, he's not talking about mere providential supervision, as he as he as he says in one letter. He's talking about the act of God breathing out the scriptures in such a way that the people who are the penmen of the scriptures are writing exactly what he wants them to write. Now that that needs to be unpacked, but but it is as you say, the inspiration of the scriptures are the exhaling of God's word and and his amanuensis, his penmen are writing it out just as as he wants them to write it. So it goes beyond just the fact that God is sovereign over all things, and of course he's sovereign over these men who end up being the human authors of Scripture. It gets down to this particular act of God in breathing out his word through these individuals. So let's talk about that a little bit. How was it that Warfield, and I think we can say how do, how do the Scriptures tell us that that happened? In other words, what's the mode of biblical inspiration? It, it isn't the case. Is it that God simply dictated in, in every respect what these men were supposed to write? So how how did Warfield talk about the mode of biblical inspiration? Yeah, and I think that that's a great question. And I think it's a question that has to be answered with some understanding of the time in which Warfield was writing. And let me summarize that briefly by saying that it was a... Really, Immanuel Kant sort of brought the dilemma uh, into the theologian's lap because he sort of articulated a way of experiencing the world around us in such a way that we didn't need God. God didn't fall into the category of being a material perception and therefore said, Kant, we can't know God by using our senses. And so God was really relegated out of the picture. But then a theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher came onto the scene and basically said, Immanuel Kant is right, but he's right. We can't perceive God, but we can still know God. And he basically said we can know God through experience. And that started a long series of pendulum shifts. Either God is so imminently close to us that we can't differentiate his thoughts from our own, or he is so transcendent and so different and so other from us uh, that we can't know him. And so liberal theology just swings back and forth between those two pendulums, and, and it was doing so in the day of Warfield. And in Warfield's day, everything was imminent. Everything was imminent such that you couldn't differentiate God's thought from our thought. That's the way people talk. That's the way theologians described it. So one of the things that Warfield said, and people don't realize this, one of the things that Warfield said, and he's and he should be noted for, is he said, we need to talk about how God revealed himself in this inspired way in the scriptures, because it's the mode that matters. Because right now, everything is God's thought. And so we need to talk how it is about how it is that God reveals himself. And so Warfield talked about, he basically talked about in the beginning of his ministry, how this mode of God revealing himself was inscrutable. It was just beyond knowing. But as he, as he moved on in his days, when we get to 1893, he starts 
to talk about how God reveals himself by way of concursive, a concursive operation. Now, concursus is just a Latin word that basically means flowing together. And so he talked about how the human and the divine are together or flow together in the scriptures. And so the inspiration of God has to do with God revealing himself in such a way, but in a way that man writes what God wants him to write in a seamless way. I mentioned earlier to you that this is like a three-legged stool. Warfield wanted to, first of all, talk about the harmony of the of the participants in the writing of scripture. And so he talks about the, the concursus of the human and the divine. And he talks about how those two elements are together in the process. But then he wants to also talk about the harmony of the product itself. So that's a second leg of the stool. And then thirdly, he wants to talk about the harmony of the entire process including both the participants and the product itself. And so, but what Warfield wants to do is he wants us to understand that there is a complete unity to the product of scripture such that it's both human and divine. In fact, he even talks early and early on about there being a human part and a divine part. And later as he matures, he, he says, well, look, we can't even talk about, parts or elements any longer. We need to talk about it being a human book and a divine book. And so he's really trying to press this idea that there's a concursivity in the mode of inspiration. That's helpful. I want to use that three-legged stool analogy as sort of a jumping off point for the discussion. And just want to also press home something that you just said. Many people today, I think, would see the Bible as maybe somewhat divine in parts. There are things that have the ring of truth or the ring of God about them in the Bible, and then some things that just are merely human and therefore flawed. And and he's trying to maintain this kind of, it sounds to me from what you're saying, this kind of unity and harmony is is one of the words that you used between all these things. So let's start with the first one, the harmony between the human and the divine. How is it that he saw the Bible as being both breathed out by God and yet written down by by human beings? How did he where did he draw that from and and how would he articulate it? Yeah, and and I think that's a really uh, good question and and you're right, useful for today. How how is it that we think about the human and the divine? During Warfield's day, there were those who were describing it in terms of an incarnational analogy. And there are still people that do that today. In fact, J.I. Packer says that an incarnational analogy is one of the best ways to understand the inspiration of Scripture. And what they mean by that is it's uh, it's both human and divine. In fact, many people use it and actually don't really use it properly because they take it as a 50-50 proposition. Well, 50% God and 50% man, but they use an incarnational analogy the way it's set forth in the Chalcedonian Creed. Um, They have to understand that there's a fullness to humanity and there's a fullness to deity, but it is the divine, which is the controlling theological category in that relationship. And that would that would be the case with uh, the inspiration of Scripture. But Warfield didn't see that as a viable uh, way to explain the mode of inspiration. And he said, because the, you know, the human writers are not, uh, there's no incarnation 
present here. There's no hypostatic union between the human and the spirit of God. So he saw there being an analogy, but a remote one. Instead, he adopts this idea of concursivity, this idea of two flowing together. The difficulty that he had, though, was was if it's a true concursivity, if it's a true flowing together, how does God maintain the superintendence? Because Warfield surely wanted to maintain the fact that God superintended not only the process, but such that the product would be fully God's in the end. But he also, again, going back to this idea of concursivity, wanted to say that this we ought to be able to say that the product is fully man, too. Yeah, that's a really good way of stating it. It sounds paradoxical, but it's something that we see in the scriptures, isn't it? I mean, I'm thinking just off the top of my head about um, Acts chapter 1, where Peter talks about, he's going to quote from the Bible, and he calls it the scriptures, and he says the Holy Spirit spoke it, and it was through the mouth of David. And so there's a sense in which you can stand up in a pulpit and say, Paul wrote these words— and also stand up in a pulpit, read the same text, and say, the Word of God says. And yeah. both are used, right? Absolutely. In fact, you find that very thing. Warfield wrote an article on that very thing. Scripture says, God says. And it's exactly what you just said. You know, it's it's interesting. Warfield spent his entire life, almost his entire life, thinking about not just the nature of Scripture its source and origin, but about the mode of Scripture. And one of the things that's really striking about Warfield is, I think at the end of the day, he's really struggling to try to find a way to communicate what it is that actually happens in this act of God. And it's not that Warfield is opposed to using extra-biblical words like, you know, the Trinity or, you know, those kinds of things to, to identify things that are in Scripture. But he really, he's always reaching for the word, you know, that will describe this process of inspiration. And, and I think at the end of the day, in, in 1915, he writes two articles. One of them is called Inspiration. The interesting thing is he never mentions the word concursus in that article. And I think that's striking because here's a guy who's given his entire life to trying to understand and describe this process. And the final article he writes on the subject, he doesn't mention concursus. What he does do is he says, you know what? He says, I'm not sure if we can do better than, than what we have in first Peter chapter one, the spirit bears along the writers of scripture. He carries them along. He bears them as he has them write exactly what he wants them to write. So it's interesting to me that I think in the end of his life, or at least near the end of his life, he returns to a a biblical word in order to say, this is the best we can do. It's really interesting. So, in other words, concursus is the word that he uses throughout most of his writing. Concursus, in his mind, is the best word. But then, that is really interesting. At the end, he just goes back to, you know... Second Peter one twenty one and says, you know, just use the biblical language. I that is fascinating. Now I wanted to talk about the third leg of that three legged stool that you mentioned. So you kind of touched on the first two that there's a harmony of the human and divine. There's a harmony in the final product, which again makes sense because it is God's word. What did you mean when you said there's also this harmony in the entire process? How is that different from the first leg, in a sense, the human divine. What did he mean and what did you mean by a harmony in the entire process? 
Well, I think what he wants to do is get down to not not just the process, not just the product, but when he talks about that third point, he says it's down to the very words themselves, the individual words. These are God's words. And so if we had, for instance, the original Romans uh, that Paul penned, you know, Warfield wouldn't necessarily, you know, pull it out of his bag and say, look, let me talk to you about the process of how this was written. He wouldn't necessarily just talk about the product as this is the letter to the Romans that God wanted us to have. But he would, you know, he'd point to the very words themselves and, and say, look at this word. This word is the very word that God wanted us to to have. And that pulls together both the process and the product in sort of a comprehensive way. And some of these are redundant. Some of them overlap. But the idea, I think the idea at this particular period of of Warfield's life is that he's trying to help us in the best way possible understand what had for a long time been thought of as inscrutable. The reason why this becomes so important is is obviously what's happening in his day. I said that everything was being considered divine, but the interesting thing was that the scriptures weren't being considered divine. In fact, there was a sort of uh, canonic view of the scriptures during that day. What's that? It's, uh, it's the idea that uh, the divine is emptied from the human. And so Basically, Warfield says the bookshelves are just bending under the weight of books about the Bible that speak about it as only a human book, only a human book. And so, you know, by the time 1894 rolls around, Warfield says, look, we've got to, you know, we've got to take what was considered inscrutable, search the scriptures for what the Bible says about it, and then teach on it. And that's exactly what he does. He says, look, we need to we need to help people to understand that this is not just a human book. This is both a human and a divine book. And that was really the impetus for him teaching on this particular aspect of inspiration. And, and you know, Jonathan, you know as well as I do that the pendulum is always swinging and, you know, we're always in the midst of a time where God is so imminent that, you know, you can't differentiate him from anything else. And, or he's so transcendent that people are talking about him as if he's wholly other. You see that not just in liberal theology, but you really, I think, sometimes see it in evangelicalism as well. And I think that oftentimes what happens with the Bible is just a forerunner for what happens with Christ. And it's really interesting that by the end of Warfield's life, what was happening with the scriptures started happening to Christ. Christ started to be talked of as just a spiritual man. And so there was a sense in which Christ was no longer divine. He was just he was just a spiritual man. Again, thinking about the imminence of the time and how God is in everything, even in our thoughts. And so why should that be any different with Jesus Christ? And I think you're seeing that same thing today. So, you know, we see the attack on inerrancy, but there but there are um, very subtle and not so subtle ways now in which we're seeing uh, Christ go in the same way that scripture has gone, or at least uh, Christ is attacked in the same way that scripture has been attacked most recently. That's a very interesting observation as well, and it underscores the need for us to continue to study these things. Jeff, if someone were going to go back and read one or two articles of Warfields, I mean, I guess my first question is, would you recommend that? And then second of all, where should they start? Some of his articles are much more technical and dense and and kind of rooted in the history of his time than others. Where do you think is a good place for someone to dive in and understand better 
Warfield's Doctrine of Inspiration. Yeah, you know, we've been talking and some of this conversation, I think, probably does reach a little bit over some folks' heads, but it's important. But I think you're right. Where does one begin when they look at Warfield? Because he is such an important figure. Somebody once asked me, you know, why read Warfield when we have all these other folks that are writing all these really good books on the inspiration of Scripture? And the answer is because all of those other folks would probably tell you to go back and read Warfield. So where do you start? I think think if you're looking for something devotional and theological, something devotionally dense, Pick Up Faith and Life. It's a book of sermons that Warfield did to the students at Princeton Seminary. It's worthy material. It's It'll feed your soul. It'll refresh your mind. So that's first. I think, I think secondly, if, if you want to read a wider variety of things like inspiration and, and scripture, but you want to, you want to see what he has to say beyond that, get the two volumes of shorter writings. Those two volumes are just wonderful, worth their weight in gold, and uh, you'll get plenty of, of scripture. In fact, the, the one article, The Human and the Divine in the Bible, the 1894 article that was the first article that he wrote after coming to this notion of concursus is in the shorter volumes. So it those two volumes would be next. You're exactly right. Anyone who's um, who's evangelical, who's writing about inerrancy and inspiration today will tell you you have to go back to Warfield. Uh, he he just did so much good work. And I think your study demonstrates to me, at least, the fact that ideas have consequences. The ideas that had infected the church in his day had terrible consequences. And then his own writings have really had positive consequences down to this day. So, Jeff, I wish we could keep talking, but our time is up. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for your work on Warfield, for your thinking about it. Thanks for the way in which you're modeling an application of it in your own ministry. And thanks for your friendship. Thank you, Jonathan. Good to be here with you. Always is. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Just for listening today, we'd like to offer you the opportunity to get a copy of Jeff's book, the book with the long title, it's called From Inscrutability to Concursus, Benjamin B. Warfield's Theological Construction of Revelations Mode from 1880 to 1915. It is really worth your time, and we'd love to give it to you. Come to placefortruth.org. Click on the link provided in the Theology on the Go section. You can also, of course, download and listen to Theology on the Go on iTunes, and we'd, we'd love for you to do that and pass that along to other people. I'd also like to say that we are dependent on the gifts of listeners like you in order to keep doing these kinds of programs and the other things that the Alliance does. You can donate to the Alliance by going to www.alliancenet.org or by going to placefortruth.org. We always love hearing from you, so you can write us at any time. And thanks again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>